Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. You're joining us today. We're going through kindness in the land. So if you were with us over the past four weeks in February, we looked at the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites who were forced to wander in the wilderness as punishment for not believing in God and rather rebelling against God. You'll notice the symbols on our screen are significant for each of the stories we're going to be covering this month. Uh, as the Israelites entered the land, you'll notice a rope, a tent peg, a fleece, and two pillars. Okay, we're going to be looking at Joshua this week, and then we're going to look at Judges over the next few weeks. As we look at the Israelites now having finished their 40 years of wilderness wandering uh, in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, and now in Joshua, under the leadership of Joshua, who was the assistant to Moses, they are now coming into the land. And they cross over the Jordan River, and much like Moses, who parted the Red Sea with the staff, actually it was God through Moses who parted the Red Sea so they could go across on dry land. Now, when the priest who are carrying the ark step foot into the water of the Jordan. The Jordan waters part and they all walk across onto dry ground. There's some reflections of Moses and they're entering the promised land yet again. And so do you find it interesting, just a side note here, and this isn't the sermon for today, but it'd be another good one to preach, is that the waters didn't part until the priest stepped into the water. That'll preach. Different subject for a different time. So as they come into the promised land, they confront one of the largest cities in the promised land. It is a Canaanite nation. There's all these different tribal peoples, but the first city they really come in contact with is Jericho. And many of you might remember, if you grew up in the church, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. We're not going to look at that specific story today, but rather we're going to look at when they came into the promised land, they celebrated the Passover, there was circumcision that happened with all the males because in those 40 years of wilderness wandering, they didn't circumcised their males. And so they come into the promised land when they're their most vulnerable, and they go through circumcision, Passover, and then dedication of setting up 12 stones, not only in the river, but outside of the river as a remembrance of how God led them into the promised land. But Joshua, as did Moses in the book of Numbers, sent in some spies into Jericho. He sent two spies in to check out Jericho. And so for about three days, these two spies are wandering about inside the city gates of Jericho, incognito, if you will. But news gets out to the king of Jericho that there are spies amongst them. There's one unlikely character who becomes the hero of the story and actually becomes an ancestor of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Her name is Rahab. And there are many scholars that I've read about that want to claim she was just an innkeeper 
or she was the host of a bed and breakfast. Really, this is how this reads in some of the, because they're trying to pretty up the story of Rahab because she is an ancestor of Jesus. They don't want her to be who she really is because Jesus couldn't have come from somebody like her. She is a woman, however, who is considered a prostitute, a harlot, a whore. Yes, it's in the Bible. Don't get mad at me for saying it from the stage. She is a woman of ill repute, if you will. Even in the pagan lands, uh, widows or women without husbands could not make living. They just couldn't. They needed a provider. They needed somebody to oversee their circumstances and daily routines and no, we don't need that today. That sounds somewhat chauvinistic, but in the culture and the time period, they needed a male counterpart, a husband, if you will, or a father or an older brother to oversee their sustenance, their protection, and their security. And so Rahab, much like any other woman of her day and age, was forced into more than likely prostitution as a way to continue to earn a living for her family. And so Rahab then has these two spies who come to her. You can speculate all you want. We're not sure why they went to Rahab, but they found a place with her. And she secured them overnight as the king was looking for them. And so we're going to pick up her story today. Joshua chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at the Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men, they sent out and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there all night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. So these people found out where they were staying and they told the king and the king sends message to Rahab. Well, Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left uh, town at dusk as the gates were about to be closed. Every city in that day and age, even a Jewish city, once they got established, would close the gates at night for security. So at dusk, when the sun was setting, there was a process by which they would shut, latch the gates, and set guards around the gates and around the parapets of the town. And so she tells a little white lie. So not only is she a prostitute, she's lying, right? This is boding well for Jesus' ancestor, right? She says, I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you could probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath the bundles of flax that she had laid out. So the king's men, they went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. But before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk with them. She says, I know the Lord has given you this land. I mean, we're all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror, for we've heard of how the Lord made a dry path for you along the Red Sea when you left Egypt. That was 40 years ago at this point. 
40 years ago. And the reputation of the Israelites and the Israelites' God, Yahweh, is now preceding them after 40 years of history have lapsed. And then she goes on to say, and we know that you, what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, they laid them to waste, is what they did, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord, your God, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Do you know what Rahab is saying? <coughs> Excuse me. She's letting these two spies, these two Israelite spies, that Joshua sent into the land know that everybody in that huge, monstrous, fortified city is scared to death of these small Israelite people. These Israelites who were slaves in Egypt some 40 years prior, who God led through the sea onto dry ground, this group of people who lived just outside of the promised land, Jericho knew of what was going on there. They, they, they knew about this pillar of fire by day or by night and this pillar of cloud by day that led the Israelites around in that southern territory known as the wilderness of Zen. They'd heard about how God provided water from rocks. How in that space when the people, God's own people rebelled, the ground would open up and swallow them whole. And now these Jerichoans, I don't know how you pronounce that, Jerichoites, Jerichoans, these people of Jericho are scared to death. She uses the words that say they melted in fear. Now I want you to know how fortified this city was. It was a double-layered wall. So what you would have is an outer wall that was probably about 10 to 15 feet thick, made of stone, that thick. And then behind that wall, you'd have about another 20 to 30 feet of space, <coughs> excuse me, where it would have been filled with dirt. And then up above that, which stood about another 20 feet higher, was another wall, an inner wall, that would have, been, again, been about another 10 to 15 feet thick that went all the way around the city. So this is two solid walls, actually not solid, because we'll find out that Rahab's house was inside of more than likely the inner wall of the city. Because those inner walls had roofs, which you could walk all the way around and catch the lay of the land. Well, this is where she'd hid the spies under flax that was drying out that she was going to use later on. And so, these people who were strong, mighty, they were in this huge city that was tremendously fortified, were shaking in their boots. But these people who had no land, they weren't really tremendously organized, and they were worried because they knew that God, Yahweh, their God, was with them. 
In verse 12, Rahab then goes on to say, Now swear to me by the Lord, when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, that is the formalized name of God. Okay, it's not some other God, it's not some Canaanite God. Capital L-O-R-D actually stands for Yahweh. And that is the word or the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. And that strictly means, I am that I am. So whenever you see an all caps word in relation to God, it's referring to the formal name, I am that I am. And so now Rahab is saying, listen, swear to me by Yahweh that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. And give me some guarantee when Jericho is conquered that you will let me live along with my family, along with my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all their families. We offer you our own lives as guarantee for your safety, they said. If you don't betray us, we will keep, excuse me, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then, since Rahab's house was built into the town walls, she let them down by a rope through the window. She says, escape to the hill country. Hide there for three days from the men searching for you, and then when they've returned, you can go on your way. Before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath that we've taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land... You must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, all your relatives, they must be there inside the house. When's the last time we heard this happening? Ah, in Egypt, the final plague, the death of the firstborn. And when would death pass over a house? When they had sacrificed a lamb and they took the blood of that lamb and with a hyssop branch painted the doorpost and the lintel with blood, the death angel would go over that house and all who were within the house would be saved. And now these spies are telling her, the scarlet rope that you let down, you know what color scarlet is? It's red. If you leave that hanging out your window, we know that when we come to take over the city, that anybody who is within the house where that scarlet rope is let down will be spared. It's pretty powerful stuff. If you betray us, however, we are not bound by this oath in any way. She says, I accept your terms. And then she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. From that night, after she let them down, she left the scarlet rope hanging out the window. The spies went up to the hill country, stayed there for three days, and the men who chased after them searched everywhere along the road, but finally returned without success. And then the spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened. And the Lord, they said, has given us the whole land for all the people in the land are terrified of us. Oh, how the tables have turned. The first 12 spies 40 years earlier that went into the land came out terrified because the people were huge. And now God is helping them understand the people should be terrified of you because I am with you. 
Here's the key point. God's kindness is sometimes shown through the most unlikely of people. Lest you think God cannot use certain people, God uses anybody who is willing and able, and sometimes he uses them in spite of themselves. Look at King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, how God used him. There are countless stories of how God uses individuals, not uses to abuse them, but uses them for his purposes, and his purposes are always good. And so God now takes Rahab, who was destined for destruction along with the rest of the city, and he brings salvation to not only her and her family, but, God, but to all the people of Israel who are now coming into the land. All the people, here's the point, let me, let me get to this. All the people inhabiting Jericho were laid to waste, but because of her faith in God, Rahab and her family was spared. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a lingering cough from the flu two weeks ago. Forgive me for that. <clears throat> it's all better now. All right, listen, have I lost you yet? Are you you're with me? All right, Rahab, prostitute, save some Israelites. And in turn, they save her. I want to talk to you about, Israel, or about Rahab's faith. What kind of faith does Rahab have? She has a very strong faith. She's seen evidence of the Israelites' God. Now, the Canaanites worship Baal and several other gods, but their chief gods, Baal, Melech, Astra, they, they are gods that obviously don't exist, but who they perceive as needing sacrifices of human. They sacrifice their children. They go to temple prostitutes. I mean, there's a lot of junk going on with these Canaanite gods and what the people perceive these gods to demand of them. And yet now Rahab, who grew up in this lifestyle, grew up from birth in this kind of community, where she's seen probably countless individuals sacrificed to these so-called gods, and she's seen temple prostitution, and now she herself is a prostitute just to make an earning or a living for herself, and she sees and knows about this God of the Israelites, of these people who've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. My guess is she may not even be more than 40 or 50 years old. We just don't know. So for all of her life, there's been these kind of Bedouin, tribal-like people who are wandering in the wilderness, but this God that's leading them has done some pretty miraculous things. News has gotten back to them. Word has traveled that this God called Yahweh, there's nothing impossible for him. She's seeing this God, Yahweh, having led these Israelites and having done these miraculous things, and then she compares them to her gods that she's worshipped all of her life, and she realizes there's no comparison. I mean, even the, my own people are shaking in their boots. They're melting in fear because Yahweh is so much greater And so Rahab comes to a faith in the Israelite God by the testimony and the word coming from the wilderness. When did you first come to faith in Christ? When did you first come to faith in God? What do you remember hearing about him? 
Was it something that struck you, struck a chord with you? Did you reject him at first? Did you think it was a bunch of bunk or nonsense? I mean, what was your faith experience like? I mean, did you come from an unchurched family, an unchurched home, or your, your past was just fraught with different circumstances that really didn't line up with much of anything? What does that look like for you? You see, for Rahab, it hadn't been the best of lives. For her to have chosen the role of prostitute meant that she was scraping the bottom of the barrel. And so she hears about this God who is a provider in the wilderness. The stories about how these people have sustained well over a million of them in the wilderness. What are they eating? They don't have crops and farms. As a matter of fact, they uproot and move every few months from one location to another. And though they have taken over the Amorite kings and a few others, and they've sacked those nations, they still didn't inherit farmland or crops or grain. So what are they eating? How are they drinking? The wilderness is dry and arid. So Rahab begins to put two and two together. She's using critical thinking and she's measuring things in her own life against things in the Israelites' life in the wilderness. And, they, and my guess is she's thinking, I'd rather be out there with them in the wilderness than here behind a fortified city scraping by as a prostitute. And so she begins to believe. And this faith of a mustard seed begins to grow. And then God brings these two spies and they just so happen upon her place we don't know if they were there for business. It doesn't say. But how ironic they happen upon her place. And she takes care of them. I mean, she has to see this as some kind of sign that God, this faith that she has in this God that is not her own, but is out with the Israelites in the wilderness. I mean, maybe he has something he can offer me. And so here these guys happen upon her doorstep and they're Israelites and and she's like, we know what's getting ready to happen. All of us do. But she basically proclaims her faith in Yahweh and asks for them to be merciful on her and her family. How many times in Scripture we see seemingly insignificant and unlikely people being given attention within the story of God's plan of redemption? I, this is one of the things that baffles me as a pastor. People come to me often. They feel beat down by life. They feel insignificant. They feel frustrated. You know the irony of all of that is? Is God uses the insignificant, those that are battered and beaten down. Because they truly know their need for him. It's those who think they have life figured out, who are strutting their stuff, have a chip on their shoulder, and have an ego bigger than the ability to get through a door that God really has a hard time using because their pride won't let them be humble enough to be used by a God who loves them immensely. And so when people come through my door, they feel beat down by life, they feel like they're insignificant, I'm like, great, that's exactly where you need to be. 
Because God's, God won't use you if your head's bigger than his. Do you get what I'm getting at? If you're too prideful, if you think you've got, if you think you have something to offer to God, be careful. Because everything we have to offer to God is something he's already given us to begin with. Do you get that? But I can dunk a basketball. Or I can, I can sing like four octave range. Or I can fill in the blank. First off, get over yourself. Oh, Brandon, you shouldn't say that. That's rude. But the reality is in comparison to an all-holy and all-loving God who has imparted you with gifts, abilities, and talents, you have nothing to claim as your own except for what he's already given you. And when you put things in that perspective, you are then humbled enough before the presence of an all-holy God to then be used by him. So when people come through my door and they're at the end of the rope, the bottom of the barrel, and they feel alone and lost, it's when I say perfect, then you are exactly where you are so that you can be used by God. Look at some of the characters of Scripture. Jacob's son, Joseph. Do you remember him? Young punk. Daddy made a coat for him. It was real pretty. You remember that? And his brothers didn't like him because dad was, you know, Jacob favored Joseph above the other sons that he had. And, of course, that's a wild story for a different time, too. But Jacob had two wives, and then those two wives gave Jacob their servants to have children with. So now Jacob has four women in his life who he's had children through. Do you think that might be a little bit of a mess in the long run? So the one favored wife of Jacob, which was Rachel, bore to him eventually a son named Joseph. And Joseph became the favored son of the favored wife. And all the other brothers from all the other women knew this. And so they concocted a plan to kill Joseph. And yet a couple of them had a moment of conscience where they said, let's not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery, let's not have his blood on our hands. So they sell him into slavery. And for 20 years, the brothers think he is probably dead by now because he'd been sold into slavery and sent off to Egypt by these, these travelers, these merchants. And Joseph, in those 20 years of time, rises to second in command over one of the most powerful kingdoms of that day and age, Egypt. God takes a snotty little brat with a pretty coat, throws him in a well, sells him into slavery, gets put into jail on false, false pretenses, and rises to the top. What about Gideon? who was chosen to lead Israel as a judge, even though his clan was the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and he was the least in his entire family. Gideon stands as one of the ones we're going to talk about in a couple weeks, as having risen to a place of significance from humble beginnings. And what about Ruth? Right here. Just kidding. Several, there's like Ruths all over the place in here. I could throw a rock and hit a Ruth. Not a baby Ruth, just a Ruth. I'm sorry. There might be a baby Ruth here. I don't know. But Ruth, guess who Ruth is in the Bible? It's a four-chapter book in the Old Testament. Is she an Israelite? What is she? 
She's a Moabite. She is a Moabite woman. What is a Moabite woman? Well, if you go all the way back to Lot, do you remember Abraham and then Lot, his nephew, and then Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah, but Lot is saved along with his two daughters, and then his two daughters realize they're out in the middle of the wilderness with just their dad, and oh, this is horrible. You kind of get this gag reflex, but what they do is they get their dad drunk, and they sleep with them so that they can have children. Did you know Moab was one of the children that came from that incestuous relationship, and now you have the Moabites? A little history lesson for you there. So Ruth is a part of that lineage, and the Moabites are not looked upon favorably by the Jewish people. But guess who becomes a hero of the story? Ruth, a Moabite woman. What about Esther? The land is conquered eventually later on down the road. Esther is now in exile. She's actually an orphaned girl adopted by her cousin Mordecai. You know, she becomes a part of a harem of King Xerxes, who was the Persian king at the time. And she's chosen as the next wife of the king because his first wife displeased him. So now she has the highest position in the land outside of her husband, the king. She has become queen of Persia. What about David, the youngest and the smallest of Jesse's sons? Slaying Goliath, the Philistine giant, and then rising to power and authority as the probably most famous king of Israel. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was she prior to being called upon by the angel Gabriel and the Lord to carry the Messiah? The Twelve disciples of Jesus, are any of them famous before Jesus calls them? No, as a matter of fact, they're low men on the totem pole, if you will. Fishermen, regular laborers, zealots, tax collectors, people that would have never made it in seminary because they weren't considered good enough to pass the class. And one final one here in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this in all the land. You remember the Roman centurion that came to Jesus? And his servant was on his deathbed. This was a servant, not a family member. Roman centurion comes to Jesus. He hears about the fame of Jesus. Jesus is healer. And he believes in Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus. And Jesus says, all right, well, let's go to your house and I'll, I'll see what I could do. And And the centurion says, no, 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 no. I'm a Gentile, you're a Jew. If you come into my house, I know that will make you unclean. And Jesus just, I could picture Jesus, because my guess is he kind of throws his hands up and goes, huh. So you believe I can heal your servant without even being there. And you care enough about honor and respect of me that you don't want me to step into your home because you're a Gentile and I would become ceremonially unclean as a Jew. I've never seen faith like this in all the land. And this Roman centurion gets a place within the story of Jesus. What story do you have? Are you insignificant? Are you not famous? Do you not have a bunch of wealth? And even if you do have those things, do you still feel unfulfilled? Good. You're right where you need to be to be used of God.
He takes those that are out of their league and puts them in his. And that's the most important part of being used by God. Second thing is, is evidence of Ruth's, or Ruth, is evidence of Rahab's faith in God. She protected the Israelite spies who came into the city. We often think of faith as being these very big decisions we have to make. But the reality is this, and I, I, I love this. Fred Craddock was, is a famous, was a famous pastor, preacher. He's written dozens of preaching books on how to preach well. And he, he was actually um, addressing a group of pastors uh, about the practical implications of faithfulness and consecration unto the Lord. And listen to what he says. He says, to give my life for Christ appears glorious, right? So you're speaking to, imagine you're a pastor and Craddock's up here and he's trying to encourage you and he's like, you guys are giving your lives over to preaching the word and, and leading people as shepherds. Awesome, you, it's a glorious calling. But then he goes on to say, to pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, we all say, yeah, I would do that. I would die for my faith. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is like, a, is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, all right, Lord, here's my life. I'm giving it all. That's what we often think about faith. But the reality for most of us is that God sends us to the bank, and he, cash, he says, take that $1,000 and cash it out in quarters. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to use a quarter here and a quarter there. It doesn't seem as glorious, though, does it? If I get my 1000 it's great. If I'm burned at the stake like the heroes of faith in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, then it's good. If I give my life on a cross like Jesus did, then awesome. We want to go out in a blaze of glory, not in one quarter at a time. But God oftentimes tells most of us, take your thousand, get several rolls of quarters, and use it daily. In one small act, you go through 25 cents here, 50 cents there, listen to the neighbor's kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost. Go to a committee meeting, give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually our life to Christ, giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory, but it's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. And most people give up because they think their quarters and their 50-cent pieces aren't doing enough. And they believe the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy by believing that they aren't making a dent in anything. Trust me, I've been there. I know what it's like. There's week in and week out that I go through and I think, God, what good am I doing? You struggle with your faith. You struggle against difficulties. You struggle against frustrations and what you perceive to be truth that may not really be the truth. And we convince ourselves that we're in a losing battle fighting against things that are never going to change. And yet one quarter 
One 50-cent piece at a time, God is changing the world through you. And I know it's easy to say, when we get to heaven, we'll see all the impact we made that we didn't realize we made. We want to see it now. But this is where faith comes into play. You have to believe beyond doubt that what you do for Christ is making a difference even if you don't see it in the immediate. Lastly, because of Rahab's holy fear and reverence for God, her future was radically altered for the better. Do you know what's super cool about this? Did you know we found in the 1950s the city of Jericho? Archaeologists were digging, discovering, and unpacking things. They found the city of Jericho. Unequivocally, they were able to figure out where it was. Did you know there is one section of the wall that never came down? Did you know that? Where there's a room inside of it? Oh, I'm sure it's just coincidence. <laughs> Imagine a scarlet rope still hanging outside of that one section of wall. Oh, it's just coincidence. It's just a fluke. No, it's just God. How cool is that, that we have archaeological evidence to prove that Scripture is true? Do you know that Rahab finds her place within God's story in several instances, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 is where we read the lineage of Jesus, the genealogy. In 1, verse 5, it says, Solomon was the father of Boaz. Who is Boaz? I mentioned Ruth earlier. Boaz was an Israelite Jewish man who took Ruth, the Moabite woman, as his wife. He became her family redeemer. He loved her. And do you know through his marriage to Ruth, Boaz became the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And if we keep going down the line, what do we find? Rahab's there. Rahab's faith in God saved her from physical destruction. I have to believe that if there were more people not looking for the spies to kill them so that they could protect their way of life, if they had all surrendered to the mercy and the belief in God, Jericho could have been saved. But they were searching for the spies to kill them, even though they were shaking in their boots. In his book, When God Was Taken Captive, Willard Aldrich writes, in April 1988, the evening news reported a photographer who was a skydiver. He had jumped from a plane along with numerous other skydivers to film the whole group as they fell. They all, one by one, eventually opened their parachutes. On the film shown on the telecast, as the final skydiver opened a chute, the picture went berserk at that point. The announcer reported the cameraman had fallen to his death, having jumped out of the plane without his parachute. It wasn't until he reached for the absent ripcord after he had been videoing everybody else's descent and deployment of their parachute that he realized he had neglected to put on his backpack. Until that point, the jump probably seemed exciting and fun. But tragically, he had acted in thoughtless haste and deadly foolishness. Nothing could save him, for his faith was in a parachute that was never buckled on. 
Only with faith in Jesus Christ dare we step into the dangerous excitement of life. As our worship team comes forward to close us out this morning, my question to you is this. Are you free-falling in this thing we call life thinking you're safe? Or do you know you're safe? And the only way you can be safe is to be saved. You say, saved from what? Saved from this life of sin and death and to eternal life through Christ Jesus. I see too many people on a regular basis free-falling, taking chances with their life. They think that they've got a parachute on, but they're not living a life of faith. And I see them free-falling, and, and I'm like, no, 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 you, you don't have a parachute on. I mean, you're going you're gonna to crash and burn. This, you, this isn't going to be good for you. And I'm not your judge, but, but everything I know about God's word and I know what to be true is that you're free-falling to your death. You see, Rahab was free-falling to her death, but she saw where the parachute was and she was willing to risk it all and betray her own people who were falling without parachutes in order to get the parachute. You see, the kindness of God comes in such, in such unlikely of ways and through, unsuch, through unlikely of people that and when we sit back thinking we've got it all figured out is when we're in jeopardy of losing. It's why this thing is called faith. It's one step at a time in the direction toward God. It's not having it all figured out. You will never have life or God figured out before your last breath. Faith is a walk that is perpetually toward the direction of God through a relationship with Christ Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can take your chances, you can free fall all you want, but I'm telling you, there's only one way to be saved, and it's through Christ Jesus. And you're saying, well, Brandon, I'm already saved. This is a salvation message, so this really isn't for me. The reality is we're falling for it. Sometimes we're free falling, and we think, I got this, and we unbuckle it, and we kind of hold it out here. You know what I'm talking about? I got this. Woo! Feel that wind against my face. All's going well. I'm free falling. The sun is shining. I get the wind of my face. My jowls are flapping. You know, everything's great. But then what happens when you hit a pocket of turbulence? Oh, crap, I need to get this thing back on. Keep it on. Free fall with style and with grace, knowing that God's got you. Why do you have, what do you, what do you need to risk it for? Would you pray with me? Father, you are good and holy, and you give us more than we deserve. I know your desire is for us to know you intimately through your son, Jesus Christ. Some of us just make a mess of things, myself included, God. I, I oftentimes convince myself that I got it figured out. Ah, I got this. I know what this is like. Only to wind up staring at the nasty end of a problem that I don't know how to deal with. God, you have all the answers. 
You're the way, the truth, and the life. Why do I search in other places and in other ways than through you? As Paul says, what a wretched person I am. But God, thank you that even in my weakness you are made strong. Forgive me for trying to take the wheel or trying to free fall without you. Remind me that my only hope and my only salvation is through Jesus. Remind me that when I'm in the doldrums and I'm really feeling like I'm at the bottom is when I'm most usable by you. Remind me that through humility and through your son Jesus, I can stand victorious over sin and death. Forgive me when I've failed, when I've doubted, when I've given up, when I've, you know, at times been tempted to throw in the towel. Thank you for your grace that covers a multitude of sins. Thank you for your kindness that leads me to repentance. And thank you, God, that there are countless stories like Rahab's in the Bible of people that seems to be so uncharacteristically against you, but that you use and bring to faith and save multitudes of people. Forgive us when we doubt. Give us strength and hope and encouragement this day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.